All right, we're going to go to Daniel chapter 10. Daniel chapter 10, very interesting chapter. I wanted to get all the way through this, but I thought, man, there is a lot of stuff here. So I'm only going through the first nine verses uh, today. And then uh, next week we'll, we'll talk about the invisible war, looking at more of the spiritual warfare that's going on in the heavenlies. And today we want to look at a topic, how Daniel meets the Son of God. Daniel meets the Son of God. And so we're going to read the uh, the end of chapter 10. Excuse me. Excuse me. Again. And again. All right. Daniel chapter 10, verses 1 to 9. It says, In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a thing was revealed unto Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, and the thing was true, but the time appointed was long, And he understood the thing and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning three full weeks. I ate no pleasant bread, neither came flesh nor wine in my mouth, neither did I anoint myself at all till three whole weeks were fulfilled. And the four and twentieth day of the first month, as I was by the side of the great river, which is Hittichel, then I lifted up mine eyes and looked, and behold, a certain man clothed in linen, whose loins were girded with a fine gold of euphaz. His body also was like the barrel, and his face as the appearance of lightning, and his eyes as lamps of fire, and his arms and his feet like in color to polish brass, and the voice of his words like the voice of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men that were with me saw not the vision, But a great quaking fell upon them, (coughs) so that they fled to hide themselves. Therefore I was left alone and saw this great vision, and there remained no strength in me, for my comeliness was turned to me into corruption, and I retained no strength. Father, I just ask that you would just guide me in this message tonight, that you would help me to bring it across so we can learn something from these first nine verses. I praise in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so uh, what we have here in Daniel chapter 10 is the introduction to Daniel's final vision, uh, the final one that he's going to see as far as scripture is concerned anyways, Uh, and this vision is going to take in basically the rest of the book from chapter 10 to verse number uh, to chapter 12, and we're going to get a lot more detail as far as what's going to happen in the future Then, of course, chapter 12, moving all the way forward to the resurrection of the Old Testament saints and and after the 70th week of Daniel, that time right before the kingdom. And so we'll see all of that uh, in Daniel chapter 12. And so, um, let's see here. Um, It's interesting here in this first verse, I called it a thing revealed. Uh, The sod is an interesting word that he used here. In verse number one, it says, In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a thing was revealed. <laughs> That's pretty specific, but it's a thing. Uh, interesting. If, uh, the word thing in the Bible is a very interesting study if you ever do that. Uh, you know, the Bible says give thanks in everything. And uh, there's a lot of things mentioned in the Bible. But this thing was revealed unto Daniel, whose name was called Belshazzar. And the thing was true. And, but the time appointed was long, and he understood the thing and had understanding of the vision. And so what we see in this first verse is actually it's being narrated to, to us in third person. 
So it's interesting because by the time we get to verse number two, we're back to first person. So why is that? Why do we have a third person introduction and then going into a first person narrative here? Well, it's simply because you would call that a, uh, just a descriptive um, announcement to, to open up a series of thoughts and so forth that they would do in writing. And that's what that first verse very is, identifier is what it is. And that's identifying the next three chapters of information that's coming. And so that's all third person. Uh, then it's in verse 14, where the thing was actually a future of Israel uh, during the 70th week prophecy under Gentile dominion. And then, of course, especially at the end of that 70th week is going to be revealed as well. In verse 14, it says, Now I am come to make thee understand, <clears throat> excuse me, what shall befall thy people in the latter days, for yet the vision is for many days. And so we're looking at a vision that's going to be far in the future, and it's in relation to Daniel's people, which is who? The church? No, Israel. Amen. So when it talks about Daniel's people, it's talking about Israel. And so he had received truth, and now he'll receive much more detail of what will happen. We'll see that in, verse, in chapter, verse, uh, chapter 11. And um, letter A, the time the thing was revealed was the third year of Cyrus. Now, this is interesting, and I didn't catch this on my first time through this, uh, but number one, Daniel continued as an advisor until the first year of Cyrus. And so I was kind of a little bit uh, misinformed there. I was misinforming myself, I think, in my reading as far as where Daniel ended his, uh, his uh, profitability here, but we're actually into the third year of Cyrus. And in Daniel 1, verse number 20, it says this, In all matters of wisdom and understanding that the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers that were in all his realm. And Daniel continued even unto the first year of King Cyrus. So this isn't a discrepancy or any type of uh, error. Uh, what we're dealing with here is the aspect of wisdom and understanding towards a king. So Daniel... What he did is he continued as an advisor until the first year of King Cyrus. But after that, he was basically retired. So number two, Daniel was retired from being an advisor to the, to the king, but not as a prophet of God. <laughs> Amen. So maybe he wasn't having the same position before the king, but that didn't stop why God had Daniel there in the first place. And he fulfilled his purpose right to the day he died. And so Daniel was appointed at the beginning as God's prophet, and that calling is something that Daniel never quit. Uh, Daniel was given gifts of the Spirit. He could interpret dreams and visions and so forth. And it's interesting because in Romans 11, verse 29, it says, For the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. So from the time that Daniel was 15 years old and the Lord gave him these gifts, to the time now where he's about 84, 85 years old, he is still exercising the spiritual gift that the Lord has given him. That's quite something, amen? So that tells you there's not a time where you can just stop doing the things of God. I mean, if he gifted you at the beginning, the Bible says that the, his gifts and calling of God are without repentance. That means he's not just going to say, okay, now you can just stop. <laughs> now you can stop serving God or... Now you can stop doing what I've called you to do. Now understand, sometimes he makes people stop. 
Sometimes he takes away the ability to, for a preacher to talk. I've seen a preacher who lost his ability to speak, you know. Well, then you can't preach, I guess, you know. And so sometimes the Lord gets involved with that. But, I mean, as long as we have the ability to do what God's asked us to do, we should always continue because his gifts and his calling are without repentance. And so if you're called as a preacher, now pastors, an office is different than a calling of being a preacher. I have a calling of being a preacher, and on top of that, I have a specific calling to the office of a pastor. But guess what? My calling to a preacher was first before the calling to a pastor. And you know what? Even if my, my calling to a pastor would stop, my calling to be a preacher would not. <laughs> Amen? Because that's between me and God. I have to continue that calling as long as, you know, until Jesus comes, basically. And so, in Hebrews 1 verse 1, it, it tells us of the way that God used to work. It says, God, who had sundry times and in divers manners, spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets. And so that's what Daniel was. He, he, he is who God is talking about here in Hebrews 1 verse number 1. That's Daniel. That was one of the divers methods that God used and in different times that God used to communicate his truth. So number three, Daniel is called Belshazzar, tying him to the beginning under Nebuchadnezzar. So we know this same person we're dealing with here at 84 years old is the same person that we were dealing with as a 15-year-old, way at the beginning there. That's quite a life, 70-some years of ministry uh, underneath uh, foreign rule, and Daniel remained faithful. <clears throat> so it goes on there in Daniel 1, verse 7, unto whom the prince of the eunuchs gave names, for he gave unto Daniel the name Belshazzar, and to Hananiah of Shadrach, to Mishael of Meshach, and Azariah of Abednego. So Daniel was now old, but it was verified that this is the same Daniel that was taken captive to Babylon over 70 years earlier. Um, some critics, in order to explain away, this is interesting because <clears throat> when you look at, at uh, Daniel chapter 11, the, the amount of accuracy is astounding when it comes to history. I mean, more than we've looked at so far. We've looked at very general things, the ram, the he-goat, and things like that. But in chapter 11, it talks very specifically about certain kings, about four kings, and one is rich, and one is this, and all these things came to pass exactly as Daniel predicted in Daniel chapter 11. And so a lot of people think, well, that's because it was only written at the time of Antiochus way in the future. And so it's interesting that at the beginning of this chapter, the Lord puts in there this little caveat at the beginning, Daniel, who was called Belshazzar. He wrote it. Then in second verse, it goes straight to the first person, I, Daniel. Amen. And so it's amazing because God knows the unbelieving heart of men. He knows that he knew that when he was going to give this much detail and in the future, when people look back, there's no way they would accept the fact that, it, that you could be so accurate with your prophecy. And so he made it that was, it was unless you just totally deny that it was written that way at all. Amen. And so God gave us all the proof that we need to show us that it was written in the time of Daniel. Uh, letter B, the truth of the thing, the thing was true. It had firmness, faithfulness. It was reliable. 
the truth that Daniel was going to receive. The thing was appointed for the future. And so it says in verse 14, Now I am come to make thee understand what shall befall thy people in the latter days, for yet the vision is for many days. And number three, the thing was understood by Daniel. And so this first verse, it really takes in a lot. It's really talking about the whole process of Daniel receiving the truth and then also the end product of that, how Daniel understood it. So when we get into verse number two, we're, we're not taking off from where verse number one ended. We're actually going back to the beginning of verse number one and saying, okay, now let me tell you how I got to the place where I understood. Amen? But in verse one, it already tells you that Daniel understood the vision that was going to be given. So letter C, the location of the thing revealed was Tigris River. And I did have a map, and I didn't, for some reason it didn't show up on my thing. Is it on yours, Ben? Okay. Uh, so anyways, it's one of the major rivers that, um, that ran beside Babylon. Remember the two great rivers? You had Tigris, you had the Euphrates on the other side. These two rivers were actually even mentioned in the Garden of Eden. You know, I don't know if they're exactly the same because the flood happened in between there somewhere, amen? And so, but Tigris was a great river. In fact, if you look today at a, at a satellite shot at the river running through Iraq and Iran, uh, it's a huge, huge river, and it's pretty, pretty uh, impressive. Number two, Daniel's burden. So we're going to move to verse number two. In those days, I, Daniel was mourning three full weeks. I ate no pleasant bread, neither came flesh nor wine in my mouth, neither did I anoint myself at all, till three whole weeks were fulfilled. And the fourth and twentieth day of the first month, as I was by the side of the great river, which is Hittichel. So Daniel's fast, letter A. You know, there's no commandment in the scripture that commands you to fast. Nor does it command you to fast in a specific way or method. And that's why many people fast in different ways. So it's not saying that, well, if you're going to fast, then you shouldn't drink water or food. Or it doesn't say drink water, but only eat food or whatever. There's no specific instruction in regards to that because it's not meant to be a religious ritual. Fasting isn't religion. Fasting is a relationship with God. Fasting is personal. It's intimate. It's not, uh, it's not a religious thing to go through. In fact, if that's what you're doing, that's mostly the flesh. Because we're going to look at, when it, when it comes to fasting, it has to do with your own heart and your heart with God. It has nothing to do with anybody else around you. That's why the Bible tells you not even to talk about it to people. Don't even go around and try to make it look like you're fasting. If that's what you're doing then that's of the flesh. Then it's religious to you. It's not a personal thing where you're trying to obtain something from the Lord. And so we've got to be careful of this aspect of fasting. True fasting is brought on by a spiritual burden and a brokenness of heart. Some great need takes away the desire for food. It's not because I had to do without food anyways because I have to get a surgery in two days. You know, well, might as well just fast then. 
that's not a fast. I mean, it's a fast, they'll say fast, and they know what they're talking about, but it's not a fast between you and God. Amen? This is something where the burden you have is so great that it's greater than your need for food or anything else that you need to survive. And that's why you give it up. Amen? And so we've got to be careful about this. The demand for the spiritual outweighs the demand of the physical. That's what fasting is. Daniel knew that it was only a matter of time before his people would suffer greatly once again. Can you imagine having the burden of the knowledge that Daniel had in his heart at this time? I mean, he was the only one on earth that carried all of that, you know? There may be some other prophets, like Ezekiel probably had some burden because he understood some things. God revealed some things to him. But in the way that Daniel saw it, not quite the same. And so it's quite interesting we see Daniel handling this burden of knowledge that he has. He had no pleasant bread, no delightful bread, nothing pleasing, nothing that you know, tantalizes you to eat, and no flesh or wine. He didn't anoint himself at all. And I take that to maybe just you know, washing yourself and freshening yourself up with uh, maybe to make yourself smell better or <laughs> anything like that, you know. I think back then that was important and <laughs> more than today, you know. Uh, but he didn't do any of that. He was burdened. Let her be, there are several reasons one may fast. And Daniel, I think, was burdened for more than one reason. I think one of the reasons was is that being the third year of Cyrus the king, the 50,000 Jews that were sent back to Israel we're already there. So now Daniel's receiving this vision and the decree had already been made by Cyrus the king and the Jews have already returned. And so I think that was on his heart because I think Israel was always on his heart. And I think there was also, unlike what we see in the first verse, that he understood it, that's a synopsis of the whole three chapters at the end of it. We're in the, we're in the process now. I think he was seeking for understanding about everything that he was taking in here, that burden of knowledge that he had. Ignorance is bliss. <laughs> People say that, amen? Sometimes it's just better not to know. <laughs> you know, It's not always the best thing to be in the know. Uh, some people, even in ministry, they want to know what's going on. Sometimes it's better for you not to know everything. Amen? Because uh, the more you know, the more you're really accountable for and the more burden you'll have to carry because of what you know. And so if you're a person that's got to dig for all the stuff, I feel sorry for you unless you're a very spiritual person and know how to handle that burden of knowledge. Amen? Because you ought not seek it unless the Lord gives it. Because it's not something that should be treated lightly when you're dealing with knowledge. There's a great responsibility in knowing things. It would have been easier for him not to know. But the Lord entrusted him with this knowledge and he wanted to make sure he understood. So he says, okay, if the Lord entrusted me with all of this knowledge of the future, then I want to make sure that I understand this knowledge. I don't want to go up at this half-hearted. And so he gave his whole heart to understanding. And that's why he was so heavily burdened and mourning, the Bible says, for three weeks. And that was the, really, he's not even talking about fasting there. The word that's used is mourning. <laughs> He was, it was like mourning a death, you know, 
That's the kind of heart he had during this time. And so different reasons why people fast, number one, uh, seeking spiritual wisdom. And that's what I think Daniel was doing. Uh, Verse 12, it says, Then said he unto me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that thou didst set thine heart to understand and to chasten thyself before thy God, thy words were heard, and I am come for thy words. Amen. So, of course, he was fasting because he wanted spiritual understanding. And the Bible tells us in James 1.5, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. Number two, seeking protection. And we see this from Ezra. In Ezra chapter 8, verse 21, uh, they were on their way back from, uh, from Persia to go to Israel for the first time. He was going to reestablish the priestly worship and the service in the temple after the temple was built. And uh, he felt ashamed to ask the king for protection. And so he would rather go to the Lord for it. It's interesting here. It says, Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava that we might afflict ourselves before our God to seek of him a right way for us and for our little ones and for all our substance. For I was ashamed to require of the king a band of soldiers and horsemen to help us against the enemy in the way. Because we had spoken unto the king, saying, The hand of our God is upon all them for good that seek him. But his power and his wrath is against all them that forsake him. So we fasted and besought our God for this, and he was entreated of us. And the Lord heard him and he answered. And so... What an interesting thing, he, he, you know, here they, they stuck their neck out here. They said to the king, hey, the Lord's hand is upon those for good that seek the Lord. And we're of those people. And now they're supposed to ask him for a bunch of soldiers to protect them <laughs> that aren't even saved. So he felt foolish doing that. He said, you know what, we're not going to do that. We just told the king that the Lord's hand is on us. So let's go to the Lord and get his protection and guidance for our journey. Amen? And that's why he fasted at this time, and the Lord answered. And of course, in those days, traveling the highways and the byways, a very dangerous venture there, and they made it without any problems. All right? Number three is showing penitence. In Nehemiah 9, verse 1 and 2, it says, Now in the 20 and 4th day of this month, the children of Israel were assembled with fasting, and with sackcloths and earth upon them, and the seed of Israel separated themselves from all strangers, and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And so it was an expression of their deep sorrow for the sin that they had in their lives. And they, they proved that to the Lord by fasting and confessing their sin. And so that's an aspect of fasting there. Uh, number four, seeking victory and help in desperate situations. In 1 Samuel 1, 6, for, and her adversary also provo- provoked her sore, talking about Hannah, for to make her fret because the Lord had shut up her womb. And as he did so year by year, uh, when she up to the house of the Lord, so she provoked her, therefore she wept and did not eat. Amen. And so she fasted. And guess what the product was? Samuel. The first prophet judge, amen. Uh, Second Chronicles 20, verse 3, And Jehoshaphat feared 
and set himself to seek the Lord and proclaim the fast throughout all Judah. And then you have the example of Esther. When they heard that, uh, that Haman was going to kill, uh, had this plan to kill all the Jews. The first thing she did is let's make sure they're going to fast. If I'm going to go to the king and risk my life here, I want everybody to fast because we're in an urgent situation and we really need to seek that the Lord will give us victory in this. And of course, that's what they did and the Lord gave victory. Uh, Number five is spiritual warfare. Sometimes there's situations where you're dealing with demonic forces in your family, in your life, uh, around you, on the job, whatever it may be. In Matthew 17, 21, uh, Jesus said, How be it this kind, goeth not out, but by prayer and fasting. And so that kind of demon, whatever they were dealing with, needed fasting to be dealt with. Amen? And so that's a very important insight there. And then number six, the beginning of ministries. In Acts 13, verse 3, And when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. So the churches many times fasted when they sent people out to, to be a missionary or to go take a church or, or whatever. And that's what we usually do when we send someone out for a specific uh, calling like that, of a time of fasting for them. Acts 14, 23. And when they had ordained them elders in every church and had prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord on whom they believed. Amen. So there you have some reasons in the scripture that people fast. And so that's good to know. Uh, number three, we're going to move on quickly here, the pre-incarnate Christ. And verse number five, it says this, Then I lifted up mine eyes and looked, and behold, a certain man clothed in linen, whose loins were girded with fine gold of euphaz. His body also was like beryl, his face appearance of lightning, his eyes as lamps of fire, and his arms and his feet like in the color to polish brass, and the voice of his words like the voice of a multitude. And so we'll move on from there. Uh, let array the glory of Christ. Um, Philippians 2 verse 6 says this, Who being in the form of God, thought it rob- not robbery to be equal with God. So Daniel saw Jesus in his pre-incarnate form. He saw him in his glory. So what we see here in this vision is we see what Jesus gave up to become that little baby in the manger and to live 30 years on this earth. Amen. You see that he didn't maintain that same view. Can you imagine being born as a baby with eyes as fire? You know, he would have caught attention. But that's not what the Lord did. The Lord gave up aspects of his glory so that he could blend in with man to become a mediator between God and man. And so this is what Jesus gave up when he came to die for our sins. And that's why Philippians 2, 7, it says, But he made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of man. And letter B, the form of Christ was a man. So that's interesting as well. Uh, Daniel 10, 5, Then I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a certain man clothed in linen. So Jesus appeared as a man to Daniel. The Word, like the Bible says in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word is the declaration of the invisible God. And I'll read to you a passage of Scripture here in John 1.14. It says, And the Word was made flesh 
and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So we did see the glory of God, but we didn't see eyes of fire. We didn't see a, a body of barrel stone, looks like gold, like golden yellow glow and the, the brass feet. We didn't see all of that, but yet we did see the glory of God in Jesus Christ. But not in his body, in his soul, in his heart, in his character, in his words, in the things that he did. <laughs> Those are, that's how he revealed God to us uh, in his earthly ministry. And so it goes on to say, <clears throat> John bare witness of him and cried, saying, <clears throat> This was he of whom I spake. He that cometh after me is preferred before me. For he was before me. So this is a statement of the pre-incarnate Christ. Because Jesus, John the Baptist, was older than Jesus Christ. He was six months old by the time Mary conceived. Or he was six months in the womb, sorry. You understand? That's why when Mary went to meet Elizabeth, uh, John the Baptist flipped in the womb <laughs> when he came near Mary. But Mary had just conceived, and John the Baptist was already six months developed in the womb, and he was born six months before Jesus Christ. And so he says, this was he of whom I spake, he that cometh after me, born after me, is preferred before me, for he was before me. Amen? So Jesus Christ was pre-incarnate. He had, there's a pre-incarnate existence of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it says, and of his fullness have all we received and grace for grace. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. And that is really how the Lord Jesus revealed the glory of the Father is through grace and truth. Then it says this last verse here, no man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. Amen? So that's why he's called the Word. In the Bible, uh, he's referred to as the Word before he was named Jesus in the manger. Amen? And the Word is a declaration. Your words declare things. It, it reveals things that are in your heart. The Bible says, for the, from the abundance of your heart, the mouth speaketh. And so Jesus Christ is the revealing of the heart of God to mankind. He is the word. He is the declaration. And so he is the revealing. He's the physical manifestation of God to mankind. Otherwise, you wouldn't have known God at all. You don't know God except for what he tells you. But through Jesus Christ, we've seen him walk, talk. We've seen him operate with people, how he, how he treated people, how he ate with people, uh, those kind of things. All those issues we learned about through the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why the Bible says that we can be conformed into the image of Christ. And we can know how to walk and talk and eat with people and so forth. Because Jesus showed us all of that being the declaration of God. Amen? Number one. Son of Man is mentioned 85 times in the Gospels. 85 times. I like what one guy was saying. He was explaining um, the, the term. Now, he was a former Muslim, and he now trusted Christ as a Savior, and he was trying to convince Muslims, and they were trying to say, well, he's called the Son of Man. And he was able to use 
the terminology son of man and to explain to them that the son of man is actually telling you that he is the son of God. <laughs> Amen. Otherwise, why would he call him the son of man? See, he needed to come as a man to die for us. And so the, the very statement, the son of man, is a great statement of his divinity. That he would come as a man and die for us. And I just love the way he put that forward to, to the Muslims. Number two, Jesus had to be the second man that fulfills all the covenants. And so, now understand this, every covenant that's been made has to be fulfilled through Jesus Christ. You reject Christ, no covenant can be, can be fulfilled. There's no king, there's no land, there's no per perfectness. Uh, none of those things exist without Christ. See, that's why Israel is still waiting. They're, they haven't received what they were promised because they haven't received the one that all the promises have to flow through, and that is through Christ. Now, we've already received much of that, amen, because we have received Christ. And so now he has fulfilled the covenant of the law, and therefore the covenant of the law is fulfilled for us. But the Israelites, they're still trying to fulfill it. <laughs> and they can't. They have to go to Christ to have the law fulfilled. You understand? And so Jesus had to become the second man. Adam was the first man. And I'll read this to you in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 47. The first man is of the earth, earthy. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As is the earthy, such are they also that are earthy. And as is the heavenly, such are they also that are heavenly. Amen. And so the Bible says, in Adam all die, but in Christ shall all be made alive. So Adam, you were born in Adam, but because you were born in Adam, we're all dead. But if we get born again, we get born in Christ, we get made alive. Because Christ is alive. Adam was dead. <laughs> Amen. And so you needed a second man. He had to come to fulfill the covenants. He had to come to provide us a way to be a mediator between us and God to bring us into the presence of God himself. And that's why 1 Timothy 2.5 says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So the description of Christ, number one, he was clothed in linen. This is priestly garment. In Exodus 39, verse 27, And they made clothes of fine linen of woven work for Aaron and for his sons. So his priestly position is how he makes intercession for us. So it's interesting as he comes and reveals himself to Daniel, what kind of clothes would he have on? You'd think, wow, you must have a scarlet robe, the robe of a king. No, he comes dressed in linen. And that was the, the garments of a priest. Okay? And it's interesting because Hebrews 7 verse 24 says this, but this man, it's a good word, because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. Wherefore, he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. So if you ever wanted to know where there's a verse that'll tell you, did Jesus continue on as a man after his resurrection? Right there. This man, because he continueth ever. Amen? 
He continues on as a man. He never shed his humanity after he rose. He kept that upon himself and so that he could show uh, us and continue to be that interceder between us and God. Number two, uh, loins girded with fine gold. Talks about they were girded with fine gold of Upaz. And I think that was, nobody really knows, but I think it's just pla- a specific place in that area where gold, the finest gold would come from. Um, Revelation 1 verse 13, in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. So you have this relationship here in the book of Daniel with the same revealing of Christ in the book of Revelation. And so they really much tie together. As you read them, you know, it's almost like you're reading Revelation chapter 1, you know. So the gold is nobility, dignity. The girdle speaks of service because he's a servant. Number three, his body like beryl speaks of beauty, brilliance, and majesty. Beryl was perhaps a chrysolite, a yellow jasper, or other yellow-colored stone. Uh, So that's what his appearance was like. Number four, his face has an appearance of lightning, dazzling to the eye, striking terror to the mind. You guys ever seen lightning? Were you able to just keep your composure every time when you see lightning, lightning close to you? Like, have you ever seen videos where people are sitting there and also lightning strikes? <laughs> they never just said, that, oh, that was neat. I mean, they're always jumping, running, <laughs> you know. It's, it's just amazing. Lightning has a lot of power. And it's almost like you can feel it. If it strikes close, you can feel the force, the power of that electricity uh, when it's near you. So when he's saying his face has the appearance of lightning, I'm sure it was a striking thing for Daniel to see. In fact, we see later how he just fell on his face and he just couldn't bear it. It was just too much. And so that's the Lord Jesus Christ in his glory. Reminds us of the transfiguration. In Matthew 17, 2, it says, And it was transfigured before them, and his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. Revelation 1.16, and he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. And so very bright. Letter B, lightning speaks of the glory of Christ's eternal kingdom, which is hidden to the world of men. And that reminds me of Matthew 24.27, for as the lightning cometh out of the east and shineth even unto the west, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Amen? So you think about that lightning striking that tree when they weren't prepared for it. That's the way it's going to be when Jesus Christ comes. That's not the rapture, by the way. That's the second coming. Amen? If, if that were to happen at the rapture, then everybody would know it. But that's not what it's talking about there. It's talking about at his second coming at the end of the 70th week when Jesus Christ comes again. It's going to be a lightning from the east to the west. And you know what? When you see lightning and you have people in a province or an area, Calgary, if you would have a lightning show, you could probably count on over a million people seeing that lightning. Just that one, one lightning strike is the, if they were looking up to the sky. Amen? And so you imagine Jesus Christ coming from the east to the west and people looking up to the sky, they will see him coming. 
It's not going to be a mistake. Amen. And it's going to terrify them. It's going to strike at their heart when Jesus Christ comes. Number five, his eyes are his lamps of fire. He has omniscient wisdom, keen insight. Uh, letter A, Christ's eyes pierce into the affairs of men. We see that once again in Revelation one fourteen. His head and his hairs were white like wool and as white as snow, and his eyes were as flame of fire. So we're not talking about an angel here. We're not just talking about another revelation of an angel to Daniel. <clears throat> I believe very much this is a pre-incarnate Christ finally meeting Daniel at the end of his life. Revelation 19.12, his eyes were as flame of fire and on his head were many crowns and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. So it's interesting that every time you see Christ in his glory, he always has eyes that are as flame of fire every time in his glorified state. Revelation 2.2, to the churches, this is what Jesus said, I know thy works. <laughs> Amen. You know what he's saying? I see you. <laughs> I see you. The Lord's eyes are very much open to what's going on in our churches. He sees our behavior. He sees our actions. He sees our words. He sees what we do. Uh, it's all open to him. <clears throat> so Christ knows, let her be. Every thought and motive of our hearts. In Hebrews 4.13, it says, Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and opened unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Amen. That's quite awesome. Letter C, Christ will reveal all hidden sin at the great white throne. Now we know that's not our judgment as believers. We have the judgment seat of Christ a thousand and seven years before the great white throne. But at the great white throne, people that come before him, there's going to be no one that's going to say, what did I do? <laughs> Prove it. You know, They'll basically know because Christ will reveal all the hidden things. He will convince you. For us, it's easy today. When we're dealing with each other, all you really have to do is lie. And everybody's, oh, I don't know if it's true or not. See, but that doesn't work with Jesus. He sees through the lie. He knows the hidden things of the heart. He knows the hidden truth behind the lie. Amen? So there's no excuse with the Lord. The great white throne, all those hidden sins will be revealed to these lost people. Number six, his arms and feet are like polished brass. This is power, stability, protection, judgment, Brass is always a picture of judgment in the Bible. Um, and once again, Revelation 1.15, and his feet were like unto fine brass. Number seven, his words and voice are like the voice of a multitude. You wonder, what's the purpose of having a multitude of voices? I don't think it was a confusing multitude. I just think it was a powerful multitude in unison. And so it wasn't him saying a bunch of things at different times. It was him saying the same thing with a multitude of voices. And that's interesting to think about. Why would he say that? Why would he need a voice like that? Well, the first thing is, I think the word of God is living and powerful. It's a powerful thing. Hebrews 4.12, it says, For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Um, 
God's word can be heard above the world's noise, above the world's confusion. See, this is the thing. If you're living in the confusion of this world and you're giving your heart to this world, you're a confused individual. But the Lord Jesus Christ, when he says something, it is always the same. It's unified. Amen. See, the world confuses you and it's easy to get confused. You start listening to what this guy says and that guy in the news and this, and you get very confused about what reality really is. But when the Lord says something, it's a unified truth. It's never going to change. If it always has been, it always will be. And so just because now people say, well, you know, I feel like I'm a woman or a man, that doesn't change what God said that I made them male and female. (laughs) You know what I mean? It doesn't change anything. And so the world has noise, the world has confusion, But God's word is always above that. And it's always more powerful and more authoritative than that. So don't get offended when people say these things. I remember having a person in the church. And they were trying to tell me, oh, it's okay for a woman to marry a woman as long as they love each other. Well, the first thing I thought, you need to get saved, (laughs) you know. But you know what they were doing? They were listening to the voices of the world, the noise and confusion. Because the, the word of God is very clear. Very, very clear. You can't argue with that. And that's why little by little, the word of God's being pulled out of the arguments. <laughs> you know, People are no longer arguing with scripture. They're trying to argue with reason and with their ability to debate and so forth. But they don't just use scripture because people don't accept it. Oh, well, that's Bible. Well, that's all I need. <laughs> Amen, that's all I need. Uh, letter B, men are obligated to hear every word of God And every man who ignores God's word is a rebel who will be punished. That's all there's to it. It's very simple. God gave us his word. It's not for you to say, well, I'll obey this and that. No, it's for you to say yes to everything. And if you say no, you're simply a rebel and you'll be punished for it. That's how it works. Amen. Oh, but you understand, God is a loving and gracious... He's loving and gracious to give you an opportunity to be saved and an opportunity to serve him. But he's not going to let you serve him the way you want. You serve him the way he says. Amen? See, we've got to understand that God is not this mamby-pamby, long-haired, hippie Jesus. He is the eyes of flame of fire. <laughs> Amen? He is not just that lamb. He is also a lion. And so... We have to be careful because I think the world, the Christian world, is trying to convince us of a different Jesus. And that's why these, the new churches now, the message is different than it has been in the past for churches. It's becoming a very watered-down message where everything's accepted. We accept you here. And, oh, isn't that great? I can continue in sin and still think that I'm righteous. <laughs> you know, you can't. The Bible says, be not deceived, He that doeth righteousness is righteous. If you're born of God, you will do righteous things. And if you're not doing righteously, you're not born again. That's 1 John. Amen? It's very clear. Number four, the result of seeing Christ. Letter A, Daniel saw him alone. The men were afraid and hid. Amen? And so, verse 7, And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision... For the men that were with me saw not the vision, but a a great quaking fell upon them so that they fled to hide themselves. 
Number one, this experience reminds us of Saul's conversion, doesn't it? On the road to Damascus, it says in verse 7 of chapter 9, And the men which journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no man. And then 22 verse 9, when Paul uh, uh, reiterates his testimony, And they that were with me saw indeed the light and were afraid, but they heard not the voice of him that spake to me. They, they saw the effects of Jesus being there, but they didn't see Jesus. But Paul did, Daniel did, but the men that were with him didn't, <laughs> amen? So the Lord is very personal. He's a very personal revelation of himself to each one of us. Number two, most people run from God's word instead of embracing it, <laughs> amen? And that is the truth. Letter B, Daniel's strength was gone. Therefore, I was left alone, saw this great vision, and there remained no strength in me, for my comeliness was turned in me into corruption, I re and I retained no strength. It's interesting when we're looking at these passages, how they're relating to other passages of Scripture. So as he revealed himself, immediately I think of Saul's conversion. Then as I see this part, what does that remind you of? Can somebody tell me? It says, there remained no strength in you, for my comeliness was turned in me into corruption. Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6. What, what did Isaiah see there? God high and lifted up, holy, 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 amen? And immediately, his comeliness, that means tonight you can look at yourself and say, I'm not so bad. Hey, I got a lot of things going for me. That'd be until you see Jesus then your comeliness will turn into corruption. That means then you're finally going to say, guess what, I'm really not that great. <laughs> you know, in fact, there's no greatness in me at all. There's nothing good in me. <laughs> and that's the effect of seeing God. So anybody that, number one, anybody that brags about themselves does not have a personal walk with God. Does not. Anybody who is trying to lift themselves up, because... <laughs> They have not seen Jesus anytime soon. But if you look at him every day, it's going to keep you in the place you need to be. Humble before your God. Amen. Comeliness is excellency, glorious, glory, goodly, honor, majesty. All those things that, hey, I'm pretty good. I'm better than this guy. All these comparisons that we do on the job. and Oh, I'm a better worker than him. <laughs> Until you see Jesus. Then you see yourself as a good-for-nothing, lazy, <laughs> you know, <laughs> rob, thieving, whatever, uh, whatever your, you know, corruption is ruin or destruction. So going from something where I, I, I look at myself with majesty, and in one glance, it turns to complete ruin and destruction. That's what happens when we see Jesus. Amen? And that's the way we have to live. We have to live. Notice what it said there. It says, for my comeliness was turned in me. That means to change, to overturn. <laughs> it was overturned to corruption. And so I thought that was an important uh, concept to bring out here. In Isaiah 6, verse 3, it says, And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. 
And the posts of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. You wonder, why would he say unclean lips? Well, the first thing is, the Lord is looking for someone to preach. <laughs> and he says, there's no way I could preach because I'm a man of unclean lips. But then it's also telling you that from the abundance of your heart, the mouth speaketh. So the things you say are revealing really what's in your heart. And as you look at God, you say, man, Lord, I am messed up. What I say is so filthy. And that tells me that my heart is so filthy. You know, how could he use me? And that's why the, the one cherubim took the coals off the altar and purged his lips. So now you can go and preach the word, amen? <laughs> wow, interesting. Let her see, Daniel fell on his face to the ground. Daniel 10, verse 9, And yet, I, yet heard I the voice of his words, and when I heard the voice of his words, then was I in a deep sleep on my face, and my face toward the ground. Falling on one's face is normal when facing God. Amen. Not like one of these charismatic church services where they fall backward. <laughs> no, when you see God, you fall forward. <laughs> Revelation 1.16, and he added in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, and he laid his right hand upon me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last. So John had the same effect, fell at his feet as dead. Um, Abraham, uh, when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abraham, and lo, and horror of great darkness fell upon him. Judges 13, 20, For it came to pass when the flame went up toward heaven from off the altar that the angel of the Lord ascended in the flame of the altar, which was a pre-incarnate vision of Christ, and Manoah and his wife looked on it and fell on their faces to the ground. 1 Chronicles 21, 16. And David lifted up his eyes and saw the angel of the Lord stand between the heaven and the earth and the heaven, having a drawn sword in his hand stretched out over Jerusalem. Then David and the elders of Israel, who were clothed in sackcloth, fell upon their faces. Ezekiel 3, 23. Then I arose and went forth into the plain, and behold, the glory of the Lord stood there as the glory which I saw by the river of Chebar, and I fell on my and Daniel one time before and as he was just speaking with me I was in a deep sleep on my face toward the ground but he touched me and set me upright amen so seeing God seeing Christ is a big deal <laughs> you know it's not this oh yeah when I see God I'm gonna give him a piece of my mind <laughs> no you won't <laughs> you'll be far too scared to say a word and you will fall on your face before God and that's why the Bible says, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. It's not because he's making you. It's because when you finally see him, your, your comeliness is going to turn into corruption. And then you're going to say, you know what? He is the only one worthy. This truly is God. And we will fall on our face. I think we need to get a little bit of that now. Even though we cannot see him here, I think spiritually, as we spend time with God, we ought to get that kind of heart before him, that humility. 
not this in-your-face type of attitude toward God. I'm going to do what I want. No, you will not. You do what God wants. Everything he asks you to do, you do it. And I don't care what it costs you, you do it. It's going to be worth it. <laughs> Amen? Because he's the God of